And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, and welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony, and finally with us is... Hi, I'm Maggie. I'm back after a bit of a hiatus. So glad to be here. And we are super excited because today we are joined by author Jung Yun, who's talking about her new upcoming release, Oh Beautiful. So hi, Jung. We're super happy to have you here. Would you mind introducing yourself and Oh Beautiful, please? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Maggie and Harmony. My name is Jung Yun, and I am here to talk about my second book, which is called Oh Beautiful. Oh Beautiful is set in my home state of North Dakota in the year 2012, which was the height of an oil boom that really sort of transformed the Western part of the state. And the main character is a Korean American journalist. She's a biracial woman named Eleanor Hansen who has not been home to the state of North Dakota for a couple of decades, actually, and has a sort of long and difficult history there. But uh, because of the boom, she is going back to this place that is very familiar to her and seeing how it's been completely transformed by the tens of thousands of people who are coming to the state to find work and hopefully make their fortune in oil. One thing to mention about Eleanor is that she is a former model, not a particularly famous or successful model, but attractive enough by conventional standards of beauty to sort of make a reasonable living wearing clothes and being photographed in a catalog. And she is transitioning to this career as a writer and having a bit of a rough go of it. So I think I'll leave it there <laughs> and we can, we can sort of unpack as we go on. Thank you so much for that. I know what it's like to have a rough go transitioning to a writer role. (laughs) And I think you did a really good job with Eleanor in terms of telling that story. I really wanted to know, though, what your inspiration for Oh Beautiful was beyond the fact that it takes place in your home state. I just really wanted to know, like, what made you feel that this was the time for this story to be told and why this story needed to be told? Sure. Well, Growing up in North Dakota, I loved where I lived. I loved my hometown. It was a really great place for my family to be there, but it was also a complicated place by virtue of the fact that it was the 70s and the 80s, and it wasn't a particularly diverse state. And we lived on the eastern side, the far eastern side in Fargo, and the oil boom took place on the far western side. And culturally, they're very different. The western side of the state, it has more, I think, in common with the Rocky Mountains, you know. Wyoming, Montana, sort of the ruggedness of of those states. So I always wanted to set a book in my home home state, but I just couldn't ever find the door to walk through to figure out what's the story that I would want to tell there. But one of the things that I noticed whenever I went back home to visit my parents, I I love driving. I it's the one thing that I still retain from from the Midwest, like those big open roads. I just love tearing around in my car just thinking, just sort of mentally writing stories or doing whatever it is that I do. 
And every time I would go visit my parents, I would hop in a car and I would drive out to the Badlands in the western half of North Dakota. So I got a chance to see this oil boom as it was happening and as it was transforming the state. You know, every six to eight months, I would be out in this region. And it was just wild seeing these developments, these man camps that weren't there even, you know, seven months before and noticing how it was just, it was not only just population and topography and geography and buildings, it was the energy of the place and the tension that I noticed. And I'm always sort of fascinated by human interaction and human tension. So finally, I had kind of found the door to open to a story that made sense to me to tell and, and wanting to do it at the height of the boom when when the tensions were thickest. That makes, I, I mean, that totally fits in with the the vibes that you get while you're reading the novel. You feel the tension, it's really thick. And something that I really noticed as well while we were reading was the emphasis on the visual changes that you were just describing. As one of the connotations of the title suggests, Oh Beautiful is a novel that really deals with the gaze, the male gaze, the white gaze, often smushed together to create the white male gaze. And for me, the choices that you made sort of regarding Eleanor's occupations were so smart to explore that theme, you know, being a model, which revolves being looked at, being a journalist, which ostensibly involves doing the looking. Something that really struck to me is that the gaze in Oh Beautiful is often kind of used as a weapon, one that inflicts violence on Eleanor, but it's also a defense mechanism that she uses. And I was wondering, why did you choose to examine the power that sort of a look can have on a person in a novel that's really deeply about racism and sexism and anger? That's a great question. I mean, so much of it is thinking about who's being looked at, who's doing the looking, who has the power in in those types of situations, but also recognizing that that power can shift from person to person, from situation to situation. So one of the things that happens in the novel is that Eleanor has a sort of an uncomfortable reunion with her older sister, Marin. And one of Marin's constant critiques of her younger sister, Eleanor, is that she's judgmental. And Eleanor is a judgmental person. She has sort of learned to have this sort of elbows out kind of approach to the world where she's just kind of, she's, (laughs) she doesn't want people to bother her. She really feels uncomfortable with with interaction, talking to strangers. So, you know, a, a weird situation for a journalist, a, a writer to get involved in, because that's all she's doing when she's out in the and just talking to strangers. But Eleanor has built up these defenses and has found that being being judgmental, using her judgment, and sometimes she can't really tell the difference between the two, has saved her in a lot of situations from grief, from pain, from discomfort, from even violence. So she's very, very accustomed to being the person who is the object of the gaze and being looked at. But she's always watching. She's always looking at other people and sometimes coming to some very quick and, and unfair judgments about other people in the process. So she is by no means an innocent she at times is as guilty as the next person. And that was something that was very intentional in her character development, which is that she's learning to the ways in which she has contributed to this to this mess that, that we find ourselves in. Thank you for that. That leads us really well into another question. And I'm going to freak Maggie out a little bit because I'm flipping our script. Uh-oh. But, <laughs> so just a warning to Maggie. But you you talked about how Eleanor is also 
is also guilty of judging people wrongly. And I feel like one of the big themes that I saw throughout this book was duality and also the potential for people to harm, but also be harmed. Absolutely. And so I guess I was just kind of wondering why that was important for you to include and how intentional it was for you throughout the novel. It was very intentional. And I think it was very much a product of the period of time that I was writing this book, uh, which was the years of 2016 through 2020. And we know what that overlaps with in terms of the presidency. You know, I spent those four years feeling pretty frustrated and pretty impotent and you know, making my signs, going to marches, doing, calling my legislators, doing all the things that were supposed to make me feel better. But then the, the, it, it didn't work. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not surprising. It didn't work. And I found myself just feeling all this pent up frustration and anger and not having a place to, to vent it. And then slowly I, I found that writing this book was actually helping me think through what parts uh, of the mess uh, that I keep talking about that I might be able to affect some own change. Cause I'm really the only person whose behavior I can control. You know, people are always like trying to find hope in other people. And I think during those four years, I was trying to figure out what hope can I create for myself and for other people, because I'm the only person that I have any sort of effect on whatsoever. So yeah, I think part of Part of Eleanor's journey and perhaps part of mine as I was writing it was to think through what to do with these feelings of frustration and anger and pain and to try to make something a bit more productive out of them because I didn't know what else to do with them. And as she goes to the Bakken, she has she has to sort of relive a lot of her own past history and a lot of the injuries that have been done to her. But by virtue of being in this place, which is so overrun by people, so overrun by men, and so caught up in in these conflicts between the insiders who have lived in this community for their entire lives and all of these outsiders, that she has to sort of rethink her place in all of this and try to do something that feels real and honest and right to her, perhaps for the first time in her life. You just said so many interesting things there that I wish we had three hours to unpack, but I guess I'm going to latch on to one of them. Sure. Thinking about sort of the fact that you could only control yourself, that you could only sort of offer hope if you were able to sort of do those things for yourself and then project outwards. There, to me, that connects so clearly with Eleanor's story. There's this moment in the middle of the book where she's at the depot and she's thinking to herself, you know, women should be able to do what they want, look what they want, be as sexual as they want. But she's grappling with the idea of who is being hurt by those actions, who was potentially harmed when that was how I lived my life. And that was such an interesting thread of thought for me. And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about what made you want to explore the tensions that can arise when a character is really thinking about the impacts of sort of a personal empowerment, freedom, and maybe kind of me-focused action, and then placing it in the context of community responsibility and harm. Yeah, I mean, it for me, I still have questions about that, Maggie. Like, I'm still thinking this all through. I... <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying this. It's probably because it's 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 a weekend and I'm feeling a little loose. But I read a lot of crappy magazines when I'm not writing. I'm sort of a, a pop culture junkie. And I, I 
I don't know. I, I've learned to own that about myself. But I look at some of these celebrities who will go unnamed, who are so comfortable with themselves, their sexuality, their bodies. And I admire that on the one hand. But then I think like, what, what, what are people thinking? What are men in particular thinking and young men thinking when they see someone who is so comfortable with their body? Like, how does that message of body positivity and comfort with one's sexuality and one's power as a woman being translated into the minds of men and, and particularly young men? So I, I'm always wondering about those types of tensions that exist between, between freedom and the implications of that freedom that translate sometimes in ways that we would we would never intend for them to. And I think Eleanor, you know, by virtue of the fact that she was a former model, that she chose to be looked at for a living and she knew what she was doing, even though she opted into that profession when she was very young. She's looking at that past that she lived and that lifestyle of being in her 20s and living in New York for the first time and going out to clubs and wanting to be looked at and feeling more special, more more like a person when she was being looked at and admired, and then thinking through how she's contributed to a culture in which in which women are looked at, but but in ways that are absolutely unwanted. She's trying to unpack all of these things, and she doesn't have any clearer answers than I do. But I'm thinking about this stuff all the time, particularly as I get older, and our culture continues to change even more. That's beautiful. I really love that you explained that to us. And you you got into a little bit more about Eleanor's experiences with sexism and also her her role in harming other people. And so I wanted to know this this book focuses very singularly in Eleanor's thoughts. I wanted to know why it's important for you to make it clear to the reader what Eleanor's true thoughts are even when she finds herself unable to speak those thoughts to other characters in the moment. She is a person who is so locked up in her head for various reasons. When she was younger, growing up in North Dakota, she didn't feel comfortable as a student, felt kind of singled out in a classroom, and then went on straight from high school to a career in which people didn't want her to speak. They wanted her to shut up, sit in front of a camera, let the clothes hang nicely, and to look pretty. It's also a career that I think a lot of people assume that because she was a former model, that she wasn't bright. So she's been you know, dealing with this for many years of her life, where she either didn't feel bright as a young child in the classroom, and then she was treated like someone who wasn't bright. So She's intelligent, but has had these sort of forces kind of pressing down on her that make her a quiet, introspective person who is constantly in her head, constantly thinking and rethinking, is this the right thing to say? Is this the right thing to do? Oh my God, I've screwed up again. She's the voice that I think a lot of people, whether they would admit it or not, kind of carry around with them. And it's awkward to to live that, but it's really an intentional act of, of writing to put that on the page for her, because I think we all kind of do that to ourselves. Like it's pretty punishing. And I think more punishing because you see it on the page, just how twisted up she is sometimes. That makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to me too, because silence to me plays such a large role in this book. There's the people who are being silenced, Eleanor silencing herself, Eleanor's trying to craft stories into publication with a wide readership for people, but she doesn't really know 
who she wants to talk about or what stories need to be shared. But then there's also the silences of things that characters refuse to say, like Mitch repeatedly saying he doesn't want trouble at the bar and refusing to elaborate on that, or Mr. Denny refusing to acknowledge misogyny in town. Everyone, except for Eleanor's refusal to talk about white supremacy and Avery, how did you decide what characters would and wouldn't disclose when they were talking to Eleanor as she's trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together? I felt a lot of times while I was reading this, like it was a, a Russian nesting doll. And I just kept seeing layer after layer in the things that weren't actually being put on the page. I'm really glad that you you plucked that out because it was something that I was thinking about a lot during the writing. And again, during that period of time that I was that we were all living through as I was doing the writing. Discourse has always been hard, right? Discourse became very, very hard between 2016 and 2020. It feels like if you wanted to talk to your families and those family members had different political points of view, like you just kind of were walking on eggshells sometimes. You were either avoiding certain subjects or talking about them in these sort of polite euphemisms to not kind of trigger a bigger argument. And I thought that that tension was an interesting thing to apply to this community where people often feel like they don't fully trust the people that they're talking to. So they kind of, they sort of sidestep it. They either avoid talking about the real issues or they just use a different kind of language that makes it feel like a little less uncomfortable than it actually is or a little less serious than it actually is. You know, nobody ever says the word racism as directly as as Eleanor is thinking about it over the course of her time there. There's one utterance of the word misogyny, but the man who's saying it is sort of saying it in jest. It's it's a word that we don't really talk about around here. So that was <laughs> that was sort of my way of bringing in the sort of current current events minefield that we were living in to play in this particular novel where people just don't talk in direct terms with people they don't know and they don't trust in direct ways. Do you think there is harm to not naming something and to being silent about racism or sexism? And what what is the role that that perpetuates when we don't name racism or sexism? And what's the role that perpetuates in the book? Yeah, I absolutely think that there is harm when we can't speak the actual words. Like if we can't even say racism or sexism or homophobia or all of these other issues that we're grappling with in this country, we're making it really easy to not talk about them directly if we can't even use the vocabulary that it that it deserves. And I think for for Eleanor in the book, uh, she's learning just how far and how deep the silence goes in this community. Part of it is that the community is changing so quickly that no one knows what to do with all of the change. And part of it is that people are trying very hard in the same way that Eleanor has tried, you know, elbows out, sort of keep to themselves, keep the, the strangers at bay and interact with people who you know and trust. But that is, is perpetuating a different kind of harm as well. One of the things that I found so interesting while I was reading was Eleanor directly naming the fact that this story isn't really about an insider versus an outsider community and that the reality of all of this is way more complicated and nuanced than that. And ultimately, she decides to settle on a story that talks about the women who didn't come looking for a better life, but who have always been there and came to stay. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on your thoughts about how insider and outsider communities aren't really productive ways to think about discourse about racism, about sexism. 
and what you were hoping readers were going to get from the novel by having Eleanor so directly name that and really shape the story to be what she saw as being the truth of the situation? That's a great question. When Meg, when Maggie, sorry, Maggie, <laughs> when Eleanor first gets to the, to the Bakken, she has inherited this story from her graduate school professor, her former mentor, also her f- former boyfriend. We'll be clear about that. And he is the person who has picked out this insider outsider story because he thought it was interesting that there are these people who lived in this place for such a long time and they're having to deal with their community changing because of all the quote unquote outsiders who are coming in. She is very quick to dismiss that idea. She still feels obligated to carry it forward because of who she got the story from. But as someone who grew up in the state, she was technically a quote unquote insider, but she never really felt like she was inside anything. Her father was white. Her mother is Korean American. She also always had one foot in and out of various communities and never felt comfortable in any of them. So the problem with the insider-outsider model is that it's all about positionality. It's who's who's the person who's making those judgments about who's inside and who's outside. And what does that tell us uh, about power? So Eleanor is quick to want to change that and eventually starts feeling empowered enough to move the story in a different direction, more focused on women, more focused on issues of race. But even she gets it wrong a couple of times. She keeps thinking that she's got the story, then she doesn't quite have the story and she's chasing something. And it takes her through the novel to realize, oh, that she's been so conditioned in her life to look at the same story that everyone else is, which is the story of the missing white woman. When she's in a state and she grew up in a state where Native American women and girls have been going missing and have been murdered and have had unspeakable violence done to them long before the oil boom ever came. So again, she is is also sort of guilty of that insider-outsider thinking. She who has often felt invisible has often made other people invisible too. I want to ask a little bit about Richard before we get more into some of the violence that you just alluded to. So at the end, Richard ends up giving giving the story back or he tells Eleanor that it was always her story to tell and that felt like such an important moment to me because until then everything we had seen from Richard was really jerky like he was just an outright <laughs> jerk who was using his power in really harmful ways and is still seemingly using his power in harmful ways but what was the importance of him naming that it was her story to tell that she didn't take it from him. He didn't give it to her. It was just hers. I think that one of the reasons why it was important for him to to utter those words is that it's really about her. It's about the fact that she never understood that until it was explicitly spoken to her and realizing that who she is as a person absolutely affects the story that is being looked at, the story that is being molded and shaped as she's going through If Richard had gone to North Dakota, as was originally planned, he would have written a very, very different story because, again, it's about positionality. And he he would have probably gone on this insider outsider track and not thought about anything outside of that frame of reference. But she's bringing her whole history, her whole heart, her past experiences with sexual violence her past experiences with racism into the story. And that affects the story. It was always hers. But it's a moment of realization 
and also a moment I think of of kind of astonishment and and guilt and maybe a little bit of shame as well for Eleanor that she never thought of herself as a person who owned stories or could tell stories like she had to be told. So she's still developing. I mean, she's not a finished product by the end of the book by any stretch of the imagination. I really loved that aspect of the book that she didn't feel like a finished product. I feel like especially she spent so much time being introspective and reflecting and sort of working to to find that voice by the end of the book, which we're really starting to see her home when it ends. But it does feel like the beginning of a journey still. She's still imagining that she's going to go and start telling the story and figuring out what's going on. But another really powerful moment of voice finding that I found was at the very end when she's back in the depot and she is forced to confront the man essentially who sexually assaulted sexually assaulted her on an airplane at the beginning of the novel. And she says, I know what you did to me. I mean, that was such a gut punch as a reader, but it also felt so, I don't know, seminal, really, really important. And I was wondering why it felt so important to you to have her speak up for the first time, sort of in those final chapters and to really start to find her voice and kind of leave us continually at a place where she's still developing. You can see that her journey is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. The opening chapter of the novel takes place on an airplane and she isn't sure at first if the man did anything to her. She's sort of half awake. She's, you know, had a couple of drinks. She's had a sleeping pill that she probably shouldn't have taken. And she wakes up to this sensation that she doesn't know if it's real or not. She goes back to her seat and sits down next to this man who may or may not have assaulted her. And she starts to convince herself like it didn't know, like nothing happened, nothing happened. But I think that that is is something that I have done in the past. You know, I used to live in New York and I would walk across the street and there'd be like a construction crew and people would say all sorts of vile, disgusting things. And I would think to myself, let that one go. You know, maybe it's because my skirt was too short or something that I did that that would elicit that kind of crap <laughs> that that I just make it about me. And that's what Eleanor is doing in the beginning. She's sort of making it about herself. Like she had a couple of drinks. She just imagined that it didn't really happen. And then for her to go from that moment of of self-doubt to the ending where she's really clear about what happened and she's willing to say that out loud to the person who did it to her, I think is kind of a signal of her transformation over the course of her time in the Bakken um, and realizing that one, she can't keep doing this to herself because it's absolutely not her fault that she had a drink and, and had a sleeping pill on a plane that makes her nervous. And two, she has to be willing to confront these things in very, very uncomfortable ways and say in explicit terms the things that people aren't talking about. So I, I like that sort of arc for her over the over the course of the book. Of course, what ends up happening is that, you know, she lets these two men beat the heck out of this guy. And that's an uncomfortable reckoning that that takes place off the page, which is that she's allowing men to use violence to resolve an act of violence that, that this man inflicted upon her. So again, you know, unfinished, but growing over the course of her time in, in North Dakota. I have a quick craft question. I'm going off script again, just <laughs> as a warning to Maggie. So that whole resolution when I was reading the book, I had almost forgotten about what had happened to Eleanor in the plane. And 
I think I, I expected the book to really unpack some of the mysteries that Eleanor is delving into with this story, but it leaves a lot unsaid and a lot almost seemingly unfinished. And I think it ends beautifully, by the way, but I wanted to know why you chose to do that. Why did we decide to stop figuring out what happened to Leanne and start our, our real conflict resolution with this moment that Maggie pointed out when she finally confronts the man. That's a great question. One of the things there was a, <laughs> it's a great craft question because I write a ton of things that never make it to the novel. And I start writing them knowing that they will never make it to the novel. One of the things that I ended up writing was the actual article that she would eventually turn in to the editors of this magazine. And the story is not focused at all really about Leanne. It, it talks about Leanne in the sense that for a period of time, the reporter's eyes, her gaze were, were sort of focused on this other case. And that was the door that opened to finding a much larger body of cases that, that needed to be addressed and weren't being addressed by anyone really in the media. Because that's often what happens with, with these cases of, of missing and murdered Indigenous women, that no one but their families and the tribal police and maybe some law enforcement for a brief period of time are really looking for them in the same ways that other cases involving white women might be attended to. So that article is something that I wrote for myself, that I wrote in some ways for Eleanor, that I knew was never going to make it into the book, because I think that would have been too neat and too pat an ending for a story that is as complicated as this. I wanted the the end to be the realization of knowing what this man in the plane not only did to her, but also finally taking some responsibility for what she has done, for what Eleanor has done and what she has done to other people. There are a couple of references over the course of the book to how when she was growing up in North Dakota, that she was so happy and so relieved when the kids who were teasing her would take a break for a second and sort of focus on uh, the Indian kids who were in, in that school as well. And she would join in right along with them because she was just so happy to not be the subject and the object of the bullying and the teasing. So ending the story on, on I don't want to spoil anything, but ending the story on sort of the gesture of understanding that she wants to tell a different kind of story, one that is largely ignored, is I think sort of a claiming of of her own individual responsibilities and, and her own past history that she's trying to make an effort to correct. Something that I really noticed in the first half of the novel that I feel like ties in with a lot of what you've just been describing about Eleanor and sort of her limited worldview, I guess, at the beginning, her, her more limited worldview versus at least at the end. And I really noticed that, you know, climate issues in a book about an oil boom didn't necessarily come up. And it's interesting to me because it doesn't really come up or start being thought about or being addressed until Eleanor visits the reservation and she's talking to Randy. And eventually Randy has to leave because one of his wells has exploded. And she's talking to the waitress and the waitress says, that guy's not here to actually represent sort of indigenous land indigenous values he's out here for himself making a ton of money and i was wondering why you chose to position randy in that sort of really contentious place and also why you 
potentially made a, a purposeful choice to make a book about an oil boom that really didn't have that much to do with climate change. Sorry if those thoughts feel kind of disparate. To me, they feel connected, but I don't know if I'm articulating very well. No, they're totally connected. <laughs> they're totally connected. I think part of that is the lens of, of, of Eleanor, who is coming to this community and looking at it through the eyes of someone who is it is essentially a journalist. I say essentially because she's 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 pretty green and she's figuring some things out. But she she comes to this community that is all about the sense of opportunity, depending on the eye of the beholder once again. So tens of thousands of people are coming to the Bakken because they they want to make money because it's on the heels of a recession because back home in their communities, they can't find a job. They're on the verge of losing their home or they're just sick and tired of being paid minimum wage and want to try and, and do something better and bigger with their lives. So it's like the classic American dream calling all these people to this, to this part of the country where money is involved. I think things get complicated and there are no strictly you know, white hat heroes and black hat villains. And that's where a guy like Randy comes in. He's the chief of this tribe and he is, you know, well-known and seemingly beloved in his community for looking out for the needs of his people. But he's also there like everyone else making money off these oil companies. And it becomes a really complicated kind of marriage between, well, here's a state that was largely rural and, you know, it's, really hard in terms of making a good standard of living through just farming, unless you're, you're talking about farming on an industrial kind of scale. So here's a community that needs something to change in terms of what makes their local economy move. Here is a state that is losing population. You know, so many young people, they graduate and they do exactly the same thing that Eleanor did, which is they jet, they leave and, and go somewhere else in search of opportunity. So it's the money that that ties all of these to get people together in complicated ways. It even has Mr. Denny, the town manager, saying, you got to kind of make room for these new people because they're the ones who are bringing the jobs. They're the ones who are bringing the opportunity. So in terms of the question about climate, it, it's a it's an issue that comes up in fits and starts in terms of talking about the air pollution, the air quality, the noise pollution, the wells that are that are blowing up, the unsafe conditions of the work, the fact that there are trucks creating massive traffic and they're all, you know, hauling dirty water from the wells. It comes up, but it's not meant to be sort of didactic in terms of uh, of an anti-oil message. I think it's meant to un unearth the fact that oil companies, they're big business, they're big money. It's really hard for communities to turn away that kind of money. But there is that part in the novel where Eleanor is sort of going through what she knows that these companies are doing to the earth. And I feel like that description still scares the hell out of me, quite frankly, because it's happening in so many different places where, you know, people are, are drilling miles into the earth. And then, well, I can't even explain the whole process, but it's, it's meant to be something that is frightening to her because it frightens me as well. But I wanted to take it easy on the the really explicit anti, anti-climate message, because I think if you read between the lines, it doesn't take much to get there on your own as a reader. That's really interesting. And I think that you 
you sort of already answered one of the questions that we had, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on class and the individual effects of class throughout this novel, because some of the people who are already living in the community end up really wealthy because of this oil, and some, and mostly these people who are being so super exploited by the oil company are, are wary of outsiders, end up more devastated by oil and wealth. And so we were wondering how you intentionally played with that that difference to to show that some of these people who were being exploited by oil companies are also people who happen to hate all non-white people. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a very interesting facet. Can you explain a little bit what your intentions were with that? Yeah, I think my intentions were simply to to render characters who are as complex as real people are. You know, someone who is a lifelong North Dakotan who is a, a working class farmer who is good to the land, who wants to, to make a living that doesn't harm the earth. It's hard for him to do that. You can see how one in that situation, when it comes to the possibility of losing land that has been in one's family for, for, for generations, might open themselves up to something as ugly as an oil company coming in and, and drilling and drilling into into land that was once used for farming and, and nothing but farming. So I think that there, like I said before, there are no white hat heroes and no black hat villains. People do a lot of things out of what they believe to be necessity. And, and I'm talking mostly about the, the characters in this novel who have opened their land up because they don't really, they've run out of, of choices. And also the fact that that those choices for some of them have turned their community into a place that they don't want it to look that way. So there are some really complicated issues involving race as well, that that people who like their community when it was quote unquote their own, which is kind of a euphemism for, you know, white, insular, small, they've also opened the doors through leasing mineral rights to having all these people come in. And it, it's just one sort of loop of of complexity kind of crossing over with another and a series of of circumstances that that we look back now many years after the boom that seem entirely foreseeable and predictable but couldn't have been back then because people weren't accustomed to this kind of money or opportunity or complexity and i don't think that many people who lease their mineral rights could have ever expected that so many people would come to that region and that region would just have expanded in seemingly in overnight fashion and changed in such dramatic ways. For me, one character that really sort of exemplifies the crossroads almost of everything you were just speaking about is Amy Mueller, who treats Eleanor very, very poorly, uh, treats many people very poorly. She is a white supremacist, which Eleanor sort of goes on a journey of understanding throughout the novel when Amy sends Eleanor to a situation that could have been really, really dangerous for her. Sorry, trying to be vague without too many spoilers. I know. <laughs> but I think that one of Eleanor's strengths throughout the novel as she's doing all of this learning is trying to find empathy as she's continuing to go. And initially when she meets Amy, she tries to find those moments of connection and empathy. And then when she discovers what she's done, the situation that she could have put Eleanor in, she turns very angry. And I feel like two of the tools that Eleanor really uses throughout the novel are 
anger and empathy sort of hand in hand, you know, being really dissatisfied with the status quo. And I was wondering how you thought about sort of the interaction between anger and empathy as you were writing the novel, because Eleanor has both in spades and at different points, they end up both helping her and hindering her. I feel like so much of my own lived experience is is channeling those two different emotions and and states of being kind of looking around at, you know, racial dynamics in our country, feeling, I don't know, <laughs> feeling really upset at at where we are, where we've been, moments where it feels like nothing is changing and and feeling that way about about misogyny in this country, about homophobia in this country. There's just so much that that one can be angry about. And that anger, I just think, will will consume us all if we don't do something healthier with it, which is, you know, where empathy comes in. That attempt to try and understand people who are not like us, not excusing anyone's behavior, but trying to be a human being ourselves and, and seeing where and how people can can come to these types of ideas. I find it kind of disturbing how more and more it feels like people just talk to other people who think like them because it's safer, it's easier, it's less frustrating, et cetera, et cetera. But Eleanor doesn't have that luxury at all when she goes back to this place that are filled with different kinds of people. So instead of being insular, being back in the Bakken brings out these these sort of neighboring emotions of anger and empathy and, and forces her to, to have to confront them and to deal with them in, in very explicit and necessary ways if she's going to make it out of the Bakken whole with a story to tell. So I'm really glad that you picked up on that because I was thinking about her sort of bouncing back between these two, not polar ends, but these two types of extremes as I was writing all along. Thank you. I think those are all of our questions. Is there anything else that you would really want listeners to know before they read this book or after reading this book? Not really. I mean, those are all really great questions. <laughs> you know, what will end up happening inevitably is that I will get off of, of the screen with you and then I will think like, darn it, like I should have said this and this, but no, it feels like a pretty complete conversation. All right. Wonderful. Can you tell us where we can find your book? Absolutely. You can find it from any of your local independent booksellers or any of the, the larger online retailers. And it comes out on November 9th. And I also wanted to add that there is an audio book that is wonderful. It is narrated by a very talented voiceover actress named Catherine Ho. So that will also be released on the 9th as well. Thank you. Fantastic. And before we go, can you just tell us a little bit about your upcoming panel with the Miami Book Fair? Absolutely. It is in conversation with Kendra Winchester, who is the co-founder of Reading Women. And it's a wonderful, I don't even know if book blog is the right word to call it, but it's a wonderful site that showcases women writers. And back in 2016, when my first novel, Shelter, came out, it won their inaugural Reading Women Award in Fiction. And I just remember being so overjoyed um, because with the first novel, you're just like, no one's going to find this. No one's going to care. But that was such a lovely surprise. And uh, Kendra and I have been in touch mostly through social media over the years. And it was just lovely to actually catch up with her for the Miami Book Festival. So I, I was thrilled. And we had a really fun conversation. So I hope people are able to check that out. We'll be checking it out. Thank you so much. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add, Maggie? Jung, thank you so much for your time and energy and all of your insights about Oh Beautiful. I think it's safe to say that Harmony and I really found it a, a wonderful reading experience and highly recommend it to all of our listeners out there. And also for our listeners, just know that you can find a conversation that Jung's going to have with Kendra at the Miami Book Fair and other amazing programs at MiamiBookFair.com. So thank you so, so much for being here with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really a thrill to to chat with you both. All right. And that is it for today, folks. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.